The sermon text is the second lesson from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, as God's elect, holy and loved, clothe yourselves with heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive each other if anyone has a complaint against anyone else. Forgive just as Christ forgave you. And in addition to all these things, put on love, which ties things together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ control your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. King David wanted to build it, but the Lord told him, No, you're not the one who gets to build it. Your son, who is going to come onto the throne after you, he is going to be the one to build it. And that disappointed King David, but he didn't mope around. He didn't whine about the Lord's will. Instead, King David got busy. He got to work getting as much ready as he possibly could for his son so that when his son did come on the throne, he'd be able to get right to work. And when King Solomon followed David onto the throne, Solomon started building it, the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. It took him seven full years to finish the Lord's temple. It was the most elaborate, beautiful, and expensive structure in the history of Israel. But even after Solomon finished the construction of the temple, it wasn't really complete until it was dedicated. And on that day of the temple's dedication, a team of priests carried the Ark of the Covenant up from the city of David, and they set it in that brand new temple in a very special room called the Most Holy Place. And when the Ark of the Covenant was set in the Most Holy Place, the Lord announced His glory in that temple by filling the place with a dense, dark cloud. And in a scene that was probably mostly frightening, but maybe a little comical too. The cloud was so thick that the priests could not even find their positions to start serving in the temple. Now very sadly, a few centuries later, that temple, planned by David, built by Solomon, filled by the Lord's glory, was destroyed by the Babylonians. They leveled it. They plundered it. They took everything valuable back with them to Babylon, including very likely that Ark of the Covenant, which was very likely lost forever, despite what Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford might have you believe. And there was no temple at all in Jerusalem for almost a century until the next superpower, Persia, they sent some Jewish people back to Jerusalem from exile with permission and the resources to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, including the temple. And they dithered for a while. They took longer than they should have, but they finally did get it done. It was nowhere near as beautiful, nowhere near as elaborate as Solomon's temple, but they got it done. Temple number two. 
And a few centuries later, the Lord's glory visibly entered that second temple as well. This time, the Lord's glory did not enter as a thick, dark cloud. Instead, it entered as a cute, cuddly little baby boy. And this time, the glory of the Lord was not carried into the temple by a team of priests. He was carried in by his stepfather, a carpenter, and by his mother, Mary. And the glory of the Lord in this baby boy, two people in that temple saw it, Simeon and a very old prophetess named Anna. When they saw the glory of the Lord in this little baby boy, it filled their hearts with delight. Simeon and Anna were overjoyed when they looked at that little baby boy because they saw in him the Son of God and their Savior. They saw in that little boy the glory of God's salvation. And it so overjoyed Simeon that he broke out in song and declared to the Lord, whenever you're ready to take me home, I'm ready to go because I have seen in the baby Jesus salvation, the glory of your salvation, not just for me, not just for the people in this chosen nation of Israel, but for all the people in the world. And when Anna looked at the glory of the Lord in that little baby boy, it filled her with such joy and delight that she could not stop talking about him to anyone who would listen in that temple. The glory of the Lord's salvation that was carried in that day by his mother Mary. Now technically speaking, the room that you are seated in right now is not a temple. But the glory of the Lord does fill this place whenever we gather to worship him here. The glory of the Lord, I know it doesn't fill this place in a dense, thick cloud. I can generally find my way around the chancel just fine. I can see fine. And the glory of the Lord does not enter in the form of a baby boy that you can hold in your hands. But the glory of the Lord does enter this place because his salvation fills it whenever we gather here to worship. Whenever a sinner is baptized, whenever we receive the Lord's salvation in communion, whenever it is preached and read in this place, the glory of the Lord's salvation is here. Because here we receive the rest of the saving story of Jesus Christ. We hear about how after Mary and Joseph presented him in the temple to keep the law of Moses, they took him back home again to Nazareth, and Jesus grew up, and the favor of God was on him. He was the perfect son to Mary and Joseph to keep the fourth commandment. We hear the next story of Jesus' life where he returns to that temple as a 12-year-old boy with perfect knowledge of God's word and perfect worship of the Lord to keep the third commandment. We hear the whole story of Jesus' ministry where he was the perfect neighbor always to everybody in every way to keep the fifth commandment. The story of Jesus' perfect life is the story of our salvation. It is the glory of our salvation because he kept all of those commandments perfectly in our place because we violate them thoroughly. Right up to the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, you see him maintain that perfectly righteous life for you. You see his love providing for his mother Mary and his friend and follower John. See Jesus' perfect heart of forgiveness on the cross, crying out to the Father to forgive the people who were torturing him and executing him. And you see right up to the end, the total trust 
that Jesus has in his heavenly Father. Into your hands I commend my spirit. That perfect life of Jesus Christ, that is the glory of God's salvation for us. And Jesus' death on the cross, that is also the glory of our salvation because Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's wrath against our sins. Jesus suffered through literal hell on the cross so that you and I will never have to go there. We don't have to be afraid of going there. We never even have to think about going there. And Jesus' resurrection on Easter morning, that is the glory of our salvation too because it saves us from the grave. It gives us the promise of a glorious resurrection like our Savior Jesus. That is the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of everything that he did to save us from our sins. And that salvation is the glory of God because it teaches us the eternal and unbreakable love that God has for us. And the glory of that saving gospel just filled this place as I spoke it. It fills this place every time a sinner is baptized and every time we receive the forgiveness of sin, salvation in the Lord's Supper. So up to this point, you have been listening to a sermon on the first lesson from 1 Kings, and also kind of a sermon on the gospel from Luke chapter 2, and you haven't heard anything about the second lesson, which was allegedly supposed to be the basis of this sermon. But really, everything you have been hearing up to now does have to do with the words that St. Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae, because this is what the Holy Spirit was teaching those Christians and all Christians through the pen of St. Paul. You are also God's temple. You are the temple that he fills with the glory of his salvation. Now you are God's temple because he built you in the first place. He put you together in your mother's womb just the way he wanted you. And you are God's temple because he has maintained you. Just the way you maintain a building, God has given you everything you need to preserve your life up to this point. But you are not God's temple just because he built you and just because he has maintained you. If that were true, unbelievers would also be God's temple. And scripture never speaks about them in any such way. Only believers are spoken of as God's temple, and here is why. He has given you faith in the salvation of his son, Jesus Christ. God has filled your heart with the glory of his salvation. And when God does that, when he brings a person to faith in Jesus and fills them with the glory of his salvation, he recreates them, he rebuilds them to be his own temple, his own holy dwelling. Just look at the way that St. Paul talks about these believers in Colossae, the kinds of words he uses to describe them and address them, and know that these words are also about you. He calls them God's elect. That means they are the ones that God chose from eternity to be saved. He calls them holy because that's what you are through faith in Jesus. That's how God sees you, perfect. He calls them loved. Christ forgave you. The peace of Christ to which you were called. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are the people 
that God has made his own, that he has rebuilt as his own creation. They are his temples. And now Paul is calling them to show it, to live their lives in the glory of God's salvation. You are God's own creation too. You are his temple. You are one he chose to receive his salvation from eternity. You are holy in his eyes. You are forgiven. You are one who knows what the name of Jesus means. Salvation. God has filled you with the glory of his salvation. And as that first lesson from Kings and the gospel from Luke show us, when the Lord fills a temple with glory, there is a visible, noticeable difference. Right? You could see the difference in Solomon's temple when the Lord's glory entered. You could see the difference in the temple when the glory entered in the baby Jesus. It made a difference in the life of Simeon and Anna. It filled them with indescribable joy. And in the same way, when the Lord fills a person, an individual temple, with the glory of his salvation, there is a visible, noticeable difference in their life. They live their lives according to that salvation. See, when Paul calls you holy, that's not an exaggeration. That's what you are in God's eyes. And now he calls you to live in that holiness, to live out the glory of your salvation. And there is so much in these verses for God's temples to take to heart as we live in his salvation. First, Paul says, there will be lives of heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. All five of those qualities deserve their own sermon, their own book, really. But there is a common thread that runs through them all, which is that they are all completely Christ-like. You read the story of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, he came across a lot of people who needed help. And Jesus' reaction was not to say, oh, what a shame. Somebody should really do something about that. Not going to be me. I'm the son of God. I've got a schedule to keep. I can't be spending time here with widows. Jesus saw people in need and he stopped and he did something for them. And there was no limit to what Jesus could do because he's the son of God. But he healed people. He drove out demons. He told a widow not to cry and then raised her only son. Jesus multiplied loaves and fish so that people would have the energy to make it back home again. Jesus saw sinners like you and me. And he offered us the greatest and most important help of all. Salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Of course, we can't do everything Jesus did because we're not divine the way that Jesus is. But we have what God has given us in our heads, in our wallets, on our schedules. And the glory of God's salvation in us, his temples, moves us to use those resources the way that Jesus did. Paul says, a life in God's salvation is one of patience. This is another one of our Savior's qualities, and you notice how closely Paul links it also to forgiveness. Because patience is a lot more than waiting for someone who's not moving as quickly as you would like them to move. You need patience to be a forgiving person like Jesus, especially when a person needs multiple rounds of forgiveness from you. But then Paul also mentions bearing with one another, which is a little bit different than patience. 
Bearing with one another has to do when you are dealing with a matter that's not black and white, right and wrong. But it is a matter of wisdom and preference, where there really is no right or wrong. It's knowing that not everybody's the same. Not everybody's wired the same way that you are. Not everybody's going to approach everything, try to solve every problem the way that you would do it. And you may be working with someone whose approach to things makes no sense to you at all. You might even think it's crazy, but you also recognize this isn't a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of wisdom and a matter of preference. So you're going to stick it out with that person. You are going to hang in there with them and not judge them in areas where God has not spoken. Paul says, forgive just as Christ forgave you. Do you see the connection here? Forgiveness, that is salvation. And when that glory fills your heart, then the connection is naturally you're going to forgive other people the same way that God has forgiven you, which means you remove any idea of personal revenge, personal retribution. You take it off your agenda because that's what God does for you in the work of Jesus Christ. And you do it not once, not seven times, but as our Savior teaches, without limit. 70 times 7. And in addition to all these things, put on love, which ties things together in perfect unity. To put on love, this is just another way of telling God's temples to be filled with the glory of his salvation because God's salvation is love. But very importantly, God's salvation is love in motion. It's not just words. God works to save us. His love is active, right? God the Father sees sinful people who need forgiveness and he acts. He sends his son. He puts things into motion to help us. Jesus comes and he works for us. He lives a holy life for us and suffers and dies on the cross. The Holy Spirit moves in love for us. He comes to us through word and sacrament and he works faith in Jesus in our hearts. God's salvation, his love, is always active. And this is how godly love ties all of these other qualities together into unity. Because when you are moving in your love and not just talking about it, you'll put all of these other qualities on display for the people who are around you. And Paul says this is going to bring peace to the lives of God's people. Can you imagine a greater peace than there was in Simeon's heart? when he broke out in that song? Could you sing a song like that if you didn't just have total divine peace in your heart? Or the peace that Anna had when she started walking around that temple telling anyone who would listen about salvation. So you, the peace of salvation fills your heart, but then Paul's point here is also that it's going to express itself in the way you deal with your fellow Christians. He says, let the peace of Christ control your hearts to which you were also called in one body. So you have the peace of Christ inside that drives away the doubt and fear in your heart, but then it's also peace that expresses itself to other people. And Paul uses the beautiful and helpful picture here of a body, which is what we are as believers in Jesus. We are one body, a unit. And you know that when one part of your body is in pain, the rest of your body adjusts to bring it as much peace, as much relief as possible. I and mean, if your back is screaming at you, your knees adjust, they bend and put you in a chair so your back can have peace. Your head hurts, 
Your hands adjust. They reach for a bottle of aspirin or they rub your head so that you can bring it peace. And that's the way it is among followers of Christ, believers who are one body. If there's conflict, if there's pain in one part of the body, the rest of the body adjusts and it moves to bring as much peace and reconciliation and harmony as possible. The glory of God's salvation in his son fills the hearts of his people. It turns us into God's temples, full of his glory. And that glory is visible in the lives of God's people. It shows itself in a Jesus-like existence of compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness, patience and deference, love and peace. And with all that in mind, it makes perfect sense for Paul to close these verses this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This is a call for Christians to come together to gather for worship, to listen to God's word together and to speak their faith to each other and sing it to each other in songs. Because when we do that as Christians, when we come together and grow in faith as a unit, as a body, God is working in all of our hearts. He is always rebuilding us and renovating us as his temples, filling us with this salvation more and more so that we live in its glory more and more completely. And the final result, everything you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Lord always fills his temples with glory. He filled Solomon's temple with glory. He filled that second temple with the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has filled you, his temple, with the glory of his salvation. Live in the glory that is in your heart. Everything you do, in every way, do it to the glory of God. Amen.